Thank you for coming to the podcast. This is Top Turtle MMA Podcast on CagesidePress.com. I'm Daniel Gabby Freeland, joined as always by my co-host Shockwave Dave Tremonte. Well, the UFC is on pay-per-view this weekend. UFC 266 live from Las Vegas with a twin bill of title fights at the top. That's right, both the featherweight and women's flyweight titles will be on the line. We're going to be breaking down those two fights as well as Nick Diaz versus Robbie Lawler. We'll be breaking all three of those down as part of Fights, Dogs, and Parlays, where I also give you an underdog and a parlay to play. And hey, our underdogs have hit three events in a row. You're definitely going to want to tune in and make sure you catch the underdog for this one. Plus, as always, I'm giving you the interviews that you want to hear. Kicking off the show today from that flyweight title fight that I spoke of earlier is Lucky Lauren Murphy. She talks about why she's the one to dethrone Valentina Shevchenko, as well as all different things about her journey to this spot right here and why this fight is important to her. And then afterwards, I will be talking to Jonathan Pierce, who gets ready for his fight with Omar Morales a little bit earlier on in the card. And we're going to get to all of that great content for you in just a moment. But before we get to it, I want to remind you that this episode is brought to you by Better Than Vegas. Better Than Vegas is the home for the avid sports better because it provides insights, analysis, and free betting picks. It's like the YouTube for sports gambling. Head on over to betterthan.vegas where you can browse, search, and follow handicappers and sports personalities as they give you their thoughts on upcoming sports contests in every sport imaginable. In fact, if you head on over to Better Than Vegas, you can catch my bonus pick each week over there. Those have been red hot as well. Check out my bonus pick on the Top Turtle MMA page at, of course, betterthan.vegas. Better Than Vegas brings you this episode of the Top Turtle MMA podcast, and it starts right now. The hosts are ready, the fighters are ready, listeners, make some noise if you are ready for Top Turtle MMA with Shockwave and Gumby. All right, and joining me today is Lauren Murphy, who fights Valentina Shevchenko for the UFC flyweight title on at UFC 266. That is, of course, on September 25th. So, Lauren, before we get into talking about the fight, I have seen your Twitter for the last few days, and it seems like you've got a countdown for food on every single day. 12 days to Oreos, 14 days to queso. You got Chick-fil-A on there one day. What What are we craving today? uh actually i ate pretty good yesterday so uh not too many cravings right now let me think about that um but i I always crave like a lot of carby stuff so i love uh like macaroni and cheese i love pasta i like cheeseburgers um i like going out to eat a lot i like going to restaurants uh yeah so uh, I think all that kind of stuff, yeah, I just dream about it while I'm in fight camp, and then it's kind of like a goal that I get to work towards, you know, after the fight, like, just eating all that good food is like one more reward, you know, for being so disciplined in fight camp. Well, I love it. I- I've been really enjoying it. Now, l- let's talk about being so disciplined in fight camp and the fight itself. I- obviously, for a long time, there's been a lot of people who've said you're the most deserving contender. You took extra fights. You kept proving it. Can you just describe to us a little bit about what it was like when you finally got that call that you are going to be the one fighting for the UFC flyweight title? Oh, well, after the fight with uh, JoJo, I was 
pretty sure that was going to be the call we were going to get. It was just a question of like what date it was going to fall on. So, um, yeah, I was, uh, I wasn't surprised to get the call. It wasn't like the biggest shock of my life. I was, I was expecting to get a call that said, you know, you're going to fight for the title, but, um, yeah, it's a good feeling. It was very gratifying. Um, it, it's just a very gratifying feeling to know that, you know, after all this time, it's like one of my goals is, you know, my, one of my career goals was to fight for the UFC championship and to, to know that that was on its way to being realized was, was huge. And I'm wondering, too, you know, have you thought, too, about the journey of it? Because, obviously, like you said, it's been a career goal. You've been thinking about it for quite a bit of time. But before this five-fight winning streak, you had actually lost four or six fights, which included a stint on the Ultimate Fighter for this belt, right? The Ultimate Fighter was for this belt. And you had lost on that in the first round. Looking back at that time, what is it like to now look forward to see where you are compared to where you were? Uh, it's amazing. You know, a lot of people ask me about, like, how did you turn your career around? You know, what was it like, you know, going through that hard time first? And, um, you know, it was a hard time, but what people don't see is that all of those losses were, like, so close. They were really close, and they were all to, you know, UFC title contenders. Um, you know, I fought Nico Montano on The Ultimate Fighter. She ended up winning the whole show. She became the first UFC flyweight champion. Um, I lost to Sarah McMahon and Liz Carmouche, who were both title contenders at, you know, bantamweight. Um, and those fights were so close, and, and some of them were even, like, controversial losses. And so I would look at that, and I would be like, man, I'm right there. Like, I, I'm right there. I'm right in the mix. I just, you know, there's just one or two things missing. And um, I kind of knew, too, that it was like, you know, I'm pretty new in my UFC career. I don't have all this experience that these other girls have, like, uh, Sarah McMahon had been in the UFC for a long time. She had challenged for the title. She was an Olympian. She had been in combat sports and competing her whole life. Liz Carmouche had challenged for like the Strike Force title. She had, you know, she had been competing on a large stage in, or a big stage in MMA for for a long time. And so I would look at that and I'd be like, man, I'm right there. I have less experience than these girls. I, you know, my background isn't the same, and I'm still able to hang with them. I, you know. Those losses are so, so close. So I think that's what kept me going during that time was just knowing that, like, these aren't blowouts. I'm not getting finished. I'm not getting, you know, just just smoked in these fights. So um, that kind of helped me persevere through that through that time until I was able to really start finding myself and gaining some confidence and, and everything just started clicking for me. And you mentioned right there at the end that, you know, it was a little bit of experience but also a little bit of confidence. Did you feel like that confidence came from – just time in the cage from that experience or, or was there anything in particular that helped you to start feeling more confident with, with what you were able to do? Yeah, it was time in the cage, but also uh, in 2019, I changed camps and I moved out to Houston and I started working with a whole new team. So I got a new striking coach uh, named Bob Perez. My new head coach was Alex Cisne and I had worked with Alex Cisne before. Um, he actually took me through Invicta in 2013. And so um, I really liked working with Alex. Um, Bob Perez was a new addition to the team. I started working with a new nutritionist. Um, I started working with Andy Galpin, who kind of oversees my whole camp. Um, so, yeah, I actually started working with an entire new team. I moved to a new state. I switched camps. I got, you know, all new sparring partners, everything. That helped my confidence a lot, just kind of the difference in the way that we trained and the way that my coaches would give me game plans to follow and the way that they spoke to me and about me. 
all of that was so different and it really helped me build my confidence. And so when I would fight, you know, for the last two years, um, I felt much more sure of myself. I felt like I had a direction to go in. I knew what I wanted to do in every area of the fight. And that, that really does make a big difference. It makes a huge difference. Absolutely. Now, you mentioned earlier in one of those questions, too, that when you were facing those women who had had a lot more experience or had long martial arts backgrounds, that you yourself did not have, you know, an Olympic wrestling background or, you know, a Taekwondo background where you competed internationally or anything like that. You know, thinking about that as your career has progressed, do you feel like that has allowed you to sort of be more well-rounded and, and sort of find yourself in MMA? Or do you feel like you sort of wish you had one of those bases that if you could have gone back and had that in your youth, you, you wish you had? Oh, of course. Yeah, I, I wish I had some kind of background in something, you know. Um, just the experience of competing, you know, being like a lifelong competitor, that's invaluable experience that you know other women I think get to take into the cage with them um having been athletes their entire life then you know their bodies are well developed into you know athletic machines by the time that they get into the UFC and those are advantages that they had over me that I just that's a lot of ground to make up you know (laughs) I didn't have that I wasn't you know uh developed well as an athlete like even even though I was like in my thirties, I just didn't have like, um, I just hadn't been developed athletically, you know, and that's something that, um, Andy Galpin has helped me a lot with through strength and conditioning protocols. He's turned me into a much, much better athlete. Um, and as far as the competitive experience and competitive mindset, you know, that is super valuable for those other women to have. And I'm, I'm really proud that I'm able to overcome those challenges and, and be such a solid competitor despite my lack of experience. And um, to me, that says a lot about what kind of fighter I am, that I can go in there and compete the way that I do, even though I don't have that lifelong background. You know, I didn't start doing judo when I was 11. I haven't been boxing since I was 16. I didn't wrestle from the time I was in middle school. You know, those are all advantages that those women have over me, and I think that because I'm such a natural-born fighter, I've been able to negate that. Well, and it's certainly very inspirational. Now, I, I want to talk about the fight with Valentina Shevchenko because that is, of course, what's on everybody's mind. You know, the, every time there's a champion who's kind of been at the top for a really long time, you know, people said it about John Jones and GSP and Anderson Silva. They say that fighter is just not ever going to get beat and they never really give a contender all that much chance. And people are starting to sound that way around Valentina Shevchenko. So, you know, for those who are, are skeptical out there, Tell them, why are you the person who is going to take Valentina Shevchenko off that pedestal? Well, somebody's going to beat her. I mean, nobody goes through this sport undefeated, first of all. She's not undefeated. Um, I don't know. I just refuse to put anybody on a pedestal like that. And one of the things that I think we all love about MMA is that the unexpected can happen on any given night. And so um, we love to see it. Like, we all love a good underdog story. We love to see an underdog come up and win. We love to see people that we think are unbeatable, you know, get beaten, and uh, it's going to happen. I'm looking forward to it. Now, you, you know, you, you mentioned the word underdog in there, and obviously you are listed as an underdog for this fight, but you seem to embrace that role, and you seem to love that role, right? Like, you know, you've talked about being an underdog, not just in, in competition, but in life and in having to struggle through different, you know, aspects to get to where you are today. Is that something that you're really carrying with you here into this fight, that that underdog mentality? 
I don't know about carrying it with me heavily. Like I don't, um, I don't really think about it that much, to be honest with you. You know, people always ask me about being the underdog, but I don't, I didn't make myself the underdog. That's something that other people (laughs) made me. That's something the odds makers have made me. That's like something about, you know, other people's opinions. And, and, uh, I think I've been like, I have like 19 professional fights and I think I've been the underdog probably in like, I don't know, 16 of them or something like that. You know, it's just, uh, I don't, I, I didn't give myself that role, you know, um, but it does take a lot of pressure off. I think it puts all the pressure on the champion because she's expected to look so perfect. Like she's expected to not make any mistakes. She's expected to look really perfect. She's expected to have this blowout performance and anything less is going to be a disappointment, I think to the public and to, you know, the people around her and maybe even to herself. And so all the pressure's on her in this fight and I can just go out and, and I'm free to be me, which is a really great feeling. It's one of the best things about being an underdog is that there's not really a lot of pressure associated with it. Well, we're getting close to the end of that interview and being you in the cage is certainly what is going to carry you to a championship. So if everything goes as planned and you are able to be yourself in there come Saturday, September 25th, what does that look like? How does Lauren Murphy get it done and win the UFC flyweight title? Man, the way I've been getting it done my whole life, I'm going to be tough. It's going to be a brawl. It's going to be a war. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm going to withstand some punishment, and then I'm going to dish it back out, and uh, I'm going to persevere. And, uh, you know, like, you know, I think one of the things that people fail to really take into account is, like, somebody's going to beat Valentina, and it's going to be somebody that's very strong. It's going to be somebody that nobody really sees coming. Uh, it's going to be somebody that has a lot of experience. And it's going to be somebody that can't be broken. And uh, I think I fit all those roles. Well, we think you do, too. And now, before I let you go, too, I do want to ask you, you know, th- you are obviously one fight away from a goal that a lot of fighters never realize. A lot of fighters never even get close to you. I'm just wondering, have you visualized yourself with the title, visualized yourself with the belt on, and thought to yourself what that would mean to you in that moment? Oh, of course, yeah. Yeah, I visualized myself winning the belt and what it would be like for Dana White to wrap it around my waist, but the truth is is that none of this has ever been about the belt. (laughs) Like, the belt is cool, and that's great, but none of this has ever been about the belt for me. This has always been about like finding out how far I can go and seeing what I can do and what I'm capable of and what my limits are. And, um, if the belt comes at the end of that, that's great. But that like, that was never actually my goal. Well, I love that message. That that's such a, a great way to end this. And, and once again, fans, this has been Lauren Murphy, who of course fights Valentina Shevchenko at UFC 266 on September 25th. Lauren, thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Well, we hope you enjoyed that interview with lucky Lauren Murphy. I, once again, am Daniel Gumby-Vreeland. Joining me now is my co-host, Shockwave Dave Tremonte. Dave, I'm going to hit you with a piece of breaking news that I saw on Twitter just before we started recording, and I want your live reaction to this. Joe Rogan is not going to be announcing UFC 266 this upcoming weekend. He is instead off and replaced by Paul Felder, along with Daniel Cormier and, of course, John Anik. Your thoughts on that announcing switch up on the pay-per-view? Well, 
I, I saw the same thing heading into this. So you're, you're not surprising me on that. Um, and my honest reaction to it is I don't know what to make of it as far as his long-term future. I mean, I'm sure he has a contract. I think he goes year to year. I assume it goes through the calendar year. I, I could be wrong on that. I remember when the contract came up, um, I want to say it was towards like the end of a year. And, uh, you know, between COVID uh, and him getting COVID, uh, not that he's like one of those fearful guys, but maybe just the travel aspect or whatever the case may be, butting up against comedy shows. If he's getting to a point where he's out of it, it's fine by me. I mean, I'm a Rogan fan and I love the eyeballs and kind of casual fans he's brought to MMA just for the health of the sport. But uh, I think his commentary has gotten lazy recently. I think he has fallen into a pattern where when he sees something in the early minutes of the fight, that, you know, that becomes his theme for the fight. And we all know a fight can take twists and turns. And that's why we love the sport of MMA over the course of 15 minutes or 25 minutes. And he's still locked into that first position. Um, And, you know, where I really started to see this in, more of a macro sense was the whole Tyron Woodley is going to gas out. And I'm not talking about him against Jake Paul, because I don't know what the fuck that was or Logan Paul, whichever fucking Paul he faced. But in the the height of his UFC career, as he was surging towards the title shot, Rogan always ran with this. He's going to gas out. And let's not get it twisted. Woodley had some sort of weird mental issue. It could have been fatigue, but I think it was more mental where he didn't want to pull the trigger. But at the time that Rogan was saying it, we just had no basis for that to believe that. I mean, he was fine. And that's where the, I started turning on Rogan, I guess you could say. And I think it's gotten worse and worse on individual fight levels ever since. What do you think? Yeah, I, I agree with that. And and also, it's it's worth noting, first of all, that he didn't do UFC 265 either. So they let Dominic Cruz do that one instead of Paul Felder. Um, so it does seem like a trend. So if you're you're right to question the fact that this is maybe beginning to be maybe a more permanent thing. But yeah, I, I will also say I, I've soured on him as of late because of, yeah, the narrative sense that he seems to always go with. It was funny, Lucas Grandsire, uh, who's a uh, writer on Twitter, did tweet out who's going to tell us the big muscly guy's going to gas out if Rogan's not there, <laughs> which uh, is just such a, a great tweet, like just absolutely perfectly put. But also, like, you're right. That that does become his narrative. If somebody looks good in the first round with leg kicks, then he just calls out every leg kick as if it's there. His sense of yelling, like, he's hurt when he's, like, clearly not hurt has gotten worse. And I'll also say this to the sense where you said he seems a little bit lazy lately. The, the, his knowledge of the guys who are on the prelims is, is as bad as it's ever been. Like, he, he knows less about the early night's fights than he ever has in his entire career. And that goes back to the time where they didn't use, even used to televise all the fights or you used to have to get, like, the first couple prelims on Facebook. Remember when you used to have to get a couple of prelims on Facebook? Like, he he, he knew more about prelim fighters back then than he does now when, when that information is, like, super easy to get through, you know, Tapology and, you know, Sean Bitter articles and, like, 80 other places where you can get information on guys who are not in the UFC coming to the UFC. He's got no clue anymore. And it's... Not because he doesn't have access to that or he doesn't have somebody to give him notes or he doesn't. It's just he doesn't care. Um, And I think it's pretty clear. He's made a whole bunch of money elsewhere. The podcast is doing great. If this is the last, you know, if we've already seen the last Joe Rogan uh, announcing in the UFC, I don't 
think I'll miss it. Like, like you said, happy for no. what he did for the sport, but I won't miss it. I mean, we've also seen this at this point, too. The UFC has built its brand to be so strong. No one singular person. Now, I will take a step back that Dana White is so synonymous between and what he did with Dana White's possessive contender series and him being the ultimate character on the ultimate fighter. I do think when Dana leaves, we'll have a different discussion because I think Dana and the UFC are kind of intrinsically tied more than anyone else. But I've seen Ronda Rousey go to WWE. I've seen Brock Lesnar go back to WWE. I've seen Connor become a shell of his former self as a fighter and a shit talker. The UFC keeps on churning. They had their best first half in 2021 in their history. There's a recent uh, investor packet that was released. They believe they're now worth $9 billion, so more than twice what Endeavor purchased it for. I used to be a huge Mike Goldberg fan just because I found him funny and somewhat charming and how dumb he could be. And I don't miss him at all either. And I also want to just end on this point, Gumby, and it's something we brought up on the show a few times. You know, WWE has almost to their detriment, like 11 announcers from my understanding now, because I don't still watch the product. I'm a hardcore nineties fan. Uh, But, you know, it's, it's okay. I've, I've always said, you know, sometimes if we know we're going to be in a stand-up war, I don't necessarily need Rogan who brings, I really like his BJJ commentary and he is a black belt in BJJ. Or if we know we're going to be in a heavy grappling match, then maybe I don't need Paul Felder out there being like, what's that submission? So I would love the UFC. They're worth $9 billion. They could mix and match commentators throughout a fight if they wanted to, or they could put someone on a desk just for reactions in between. I would love to go to Joe Rogan in the post Khabib Connor melee with Khabib flying like an Eagle out of the octagon on Dylan Dennis. I like having Rogan in those moments. Cause I think he could be funny. He could think on his feet. He he's the largest podcaster in the world and he's commentating on what we're seeing a, a crazy moment. That's great. Like he could just be in the, the like the prelim uh, desk, you know, and they could cut back to him for a reaction. I don't need him on every fight. Cause like you said, he doesn't even care anymore. He doesn't even know who the prelim fighters are. So at the very least, UFC's worth a lot of money. You don't need Joe Rogan on all 11 fights. Yeah, that's true. I, I wouldn't be surprised to see him mis- mixing and matching too, but even without doing that too, they really have put together a pretty damn good team of people who now do it, right? Like I, I'm a fan of Felder. I, I don't particularly love Dominic Cruz, but I'm a fan of Felder and I like uh, Daniel Cormier. I, I, I like DC when he's yeah. not near Joe, especially like he's even better than yeah. um, he, him working the desk with Laura Sanko on contender series was incredible. Like she, those two could be paired all the time. She could start doing fights in the UFC as well. Like I, I think there's so many options. Shout out to Brendan Fitzgerald. Who's good too. And, and like, obviously John Annick's a great play by play guy. So there, there's too many options to just keep uh, that one, one note and to think that you have to keep, you know, like your guy in charge. So, uh, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised to see him mixing and matching in fight cards, but even if they don't do that, like there's just so much diversity and good announcing out there, they might as well use what they got. Also got to say, and this could be our last point. I think all modern fans are so smart about their sports. I mean, you go to the average person right now and ask them about like, who's the best backup tight end in the league. And they know because of fantasy football. And I think the role of the play-by-play announcer 
it's very much a traffic cop. It's very much, you know, pitching to the next segment and having the director in your ear. And you have to be really good at that. And I don't, I wouldn't want to rely on ex fighters for that who maybe don't have the TV background or the production background. But what I want to say is you see the success of Monday night football with the second feed with Eli and Peyton just reacting. It's done really well for ESPN. The reaction has been tremendous. And that's one thing I actually love about Anik is I notice sometimes he'll just lay out, you know, okay, guy got knocked out. And then he just lets DC and Bisping react. And it's tremendous because watching fighters react, you know, there's a certain passion there and it's just kind of cool to see them act as fans after we watch them as fighters. So my point being too, I, I agree. I think they've developed a really good roster and team and they could kind of mix and match. And even the role of the play-by-play guy, I think is kind of being diminished a little bit as far as saying like, Oh, this is what happened. Here's what, like, we see it, we get it. Most people know what they're watching now. Um, so I don't know. It's just kind of interesting where we go from here, but bottom line, I ain't going to miss Joe Rogan. Nope. I totally agree. All right, let's get to our, well, with that being said, all right, let's get to our favorite segment on the show, Fights, Dogs, Parlays for UFC 266. I'm so excited about this card. I feel like we've had a bit of a lull in exciting fights the past few weeks, but we're going to end the year strong, and we're going to start with UFC 266. So, Gumby, before we get to our favorite segment on the show, does anyone sponsor this edition of Fights, Dogs, and Parlays? Absolutely. Fight Stocks and Parlays is brought to you by Maroon Social. M-A-R-U-N-E. Maroon Social is the one and only social media app for the martial arts enthusiast. Whether you do kickboxing, judo, sambo, jujitsu, or any other martial art, you can log your training sessions, log your competitions, tag training partners, log your weigh-ins, and so much more, all right in the palm of your hand. Ditch that dirty jujitsu journal and get yourself Maroon Social wherever it is you download apps. All right, what an interesting main event we have here. The two coaches on the latest season of The Ultimate Fighter, Alexander Volkanovsky, the champion at 145 pounds, is a minus 160 favorite to Brian Ortega, the plus 135 dog. Volkanovsky is on a huge winning streak. You'd have to go back to his fourth professional fight back in May of 2013 to find him in his last loss. Uh, he's 22-1 and one as a pro. He's undefeated in the UFC beat Jeremy Kennedy, Darren Elkins, Chad Mendez, Jose Aldo in the run-up to him challenging Max Holloway for the title. And he really had a very impressive performance, taking four rounds to one um, on most people's scorecards back at UFC 245 in December of 2019. So he became the champion. Then an instant rematch, a UFC classic. Let's run back the rematch. Uh, this is in July of 2020. He beat Max Holloway again, this time by split decision. So he has one title defense to his name. Brian Ortega has fought for the title before, and he lost to the aforementioned Max Holloway. That was back in December of 2018. He lost via TKO. It was actually a doctor stoppage. But he came back with a big win over Chan Sung Jung uh, in October of 2020. Ortega, very interesting fighter. Um, a lot of late-round wins. Uh, Diego Brandao, Clay Guida, Cub Swanson. Um, you know, he's a guy that bends but never breaks. Had a huge KO over Frankie Edgar. Uh, back in March of 2018 that earned him the title shot. And he's someone who I think is striking has gotten, he was primarily a jiu-jitsu fighter, as we used to say back in the days of UFC one, but his striking has gotten a lot better. Um, and we saw that against Chan Sung Jung back in October of 2020, his last win. He's the dog here at plus 135, a very slight dog. He's definitely going to have the reach on Volkanovsky, but I also thought Max Holloway could do things with that. And he couldn't. I keep thinking uh, this is going to be the fight that Volkanovski loses when it came to both the Max Holloway fights. 
Um, and here I am thinking that Ortega has a really good shot here. But, you know, if Volkanovski wins, I'm just going to be like, well, this guy keeps on winning. I don't know what to say anymore. Anyway, who are you picking? I'm going to pick Volkanovski. Um, you know, I, I look, I, I think what what Brian Ortega did last time in, in a fight with with Chansuk Jung looked very good. But the, the fact of the matter is, for me, Volkanovski is a guy who is wildly, wildly underrated in terms of his game planning. Because if you go back and you watch those fights with Chad Mendez, you watch that fight with Jose Aldo, and you watch both those fights with Max Holloway, he has a way of taking people out of their element. You know, he, he does not let Max Holloway come forward and build up volume. He didn't let Jose Aldo off the cage. He put that bastard on the cage and he told him, no, you're going to fight there. And he made Max Holloway, or uh, Chad Mendez rather, for a, quite a while, fight a ranged striking fight, which doesn't bode well for him. He makes people fight the fight that doesn't work for them. Now, you know, what that is against Brian Ortega, I'm not even sure at this point, because his range striking has gotten quite a bit better, as we saw in the Chance of Junk fight. He also obviously has the jiu-jitsu skills. I wouldn't really be surprised to watch him go with a similar game plan as he did against Jose Aldo. But sort of regardless of what game plan he decides on, I'm sure it will be the right one. And I just like him to be able to stay away from those submissions. Like you mentioned, he's got a lot of late finishes. And a lot of those fights he was losing too, right? Like I don't know that he was beating Hanato Moicano. I don't know that he... I think he was losing to Clay Guida. I'll be real honest before he lands that flying knee with 40 seconds left. So like we're talking about a guy who has dropped rounds to guys who are not championship caliber and quite a few of them, and he's fighting a guy who knows how to not only pick up rounds, but pick up a lot of early rounds and pick up momentum as he goes. I just think Volkanovski probably rolls super easy here. Um, And yeah, I I think also the fact that he's this close in the betting odds makes him really kind of a really great value too. Mm. Yeah, I don't don't think it's going to roll easy, but I can't fault a Volkanovski pick. We'll move on to a pick that I think is much easier, um, and that's going to be Valentina Shevchenko, the bullet, who's a minus 1,400 favorite, uh, versus Lauren Murphy, who's a plus 1,000 dog. Valentina Shevchenko, now listen, the 125-pound women's division, it's fledgling, as they say. It's rather new. I don't think there's depth there as there is in 115 and 135, which have been around longer. But that being said, Shevchenko has looked great at the weight, obviously. She's defended the title now five times, which is like, how many people have five title defenses in the UFC? That's actually a very short list when you think about it. So she certainly cemented herself as the 125 GOAT. This is after she lost to Amanda Nunes for the second time for the UFC Women's Bantamweight Champion. She came down to flyweight and has reeled off seven wins in a row, including beating Joanna Janjacek for the vacant and first flyweight women's title and has now defended five times since then. I don't think Lauren Murphy is going to be the person to defeat her here. Uh, I'd like to hear a path to victory if there is one for Murphy, but who are you taking? And obviously it's Shevchenko. So I, I think Shevchenko, it makes sense if you're going with the, like, you know, gun to your head, you have to pick somebody to win, uh, to save your life. You, you go with Valentina Shevchenko, but I think this fight is infinitely closer than a one thousand plus 1000 underdog. If you are betting on this fight, bet on Lauren Murphy, uh, because getting 10 to one odds on her, I think is pretty ridiculous because like you said, 
you want a path to victory for her? It's really simple. Valentina Shevchenko, despite the fact that she has really good grappling offense, has not always had the most sterling grappling defense. She was taken down in the first round against Jennifer Maya, and Jennifer Maya beat her in a round. Right, like if she is a quote unquote this uh, you know unstoppable dominate champion that everybody makes her out to be, you don't give up a round to Jennifer Maya, uh, who who largely has has been with the exception of the submission of JoJo Calderwood, kind of a non factor in the division, right? Like she lost to Caitlin Jokagian and Liz Carmouche really easily, um, and then you know took a round off of Valentina Shevchenko. Plus, if you go back to Shevchenko's losses to, to Amanda Nunes, what is Amanda Nunes doing to her? She took her down a bunch of times, right? Like, she took her down a couple of times, beat the hell out of her on the ground, made sure she won those rounds. In both her first fight with her, which, you know, was a unanimous decision back at UFC 196, and the fight at, you know, UFC 215, she, she took her down in both of those fights and beat the hell out of her. Now, if you go look at Lauren Murphy's stats, she's got takedowns in all four of her last four wins, including a rear naked choke victory in there. She took Andrea Lee down twice. She absolutely bodied up Roxanne Matafari. She beat up Jojo Calderwood and took her down a bunch of times. I think you're right to, to be skeptical of her chances because she is, you know, she's not the, the champion we've seen at the top beating every newcomer seemingly super easy. But as far as like what you would expect for a style to give Valentina Shevchenko trouble... Somebody who can be physical, somebody who can sort of wear on her and grind on her, and somebody who can land the occasional takedown, I think is the right kind of opponent that would beat her. Again, whether or not you think that's Lauren Murphy, that's sort of up for you to decide. But the the fact that she is plus 1,000 and kind of fits that stereotype of what I'm thinking of, I mean, like, if you're going to bet a side, you bet the Lauren Murphy side. All right. I don't hate your thinking on that, though I still think Shevchenko is going to head kick her face off. Uh, that being said, thanks, Lauren, for coming on the show. We do love you. All right. Let's get to the senior circuit. Uh, this is something I would kill uh, Bellator for running. Um, <laughs> I guess because it's in the UFC, it's like a little bit cooler because there's the lineage and the legacy there to their last fight and their two future Hall of Famers. Um, and of course, I'm talking about. Nick Diaz and Robbie Lawler, uh, who will be fighting again this week. Um, and Nick Diaz is a minus 115 and Robbie Lawler is a minus 105, which is fair odds because Vegas has no idea what to make of this fight as well. They shouldn't. Robbie Lawler is on a four fight losing streak since been beating Donald Cerrone back in July of 2017. He's seen losses to Rafael Dos Anjos, Ben fucking Askren, who got knocked out by a Paul brother in boxing. Colby Covington and Neil Magny back in August of 2020. So it's been over a year for Robbie Lawler since we last saw him. But guess what? It's been over six years since we last saw uh, Nick Diaz. Uh, just think about it. Recreational weed was only legal in four states the last time we saw him, now legal in 18. Uh, he had a no contest uh, loss overturned. Uh, because Silva tested positive for the no-no steroids, but he did lose to Silva there. He lost to George St. Pierre before that in 2013, lost to Carlos Condit before that in 2012. So the last win on the books for Nick Diaz was October of 2011 against BJ Penn. Is this the week he gets his win back a decade later or gets a win a decade later? Uh, it's a great question. Uh, you know, what is another, I'm going to shout out that same person twice in a row. Another Lucas grandsire tweet. He, uh, he pointed out, do you know how many months it's been since these two fought? 
uh, months. Well, I think the year was like, what, 2005. So quick math, 16 times 12. Uh, I don't know, 120 months. It's been 209, 209, also known as the zip Did code my, of my... Stockton. <laughs> Is my math off, or what year did they fight? They fought, I believe it was 17 years ago, and 17 times 12 is 204. So it was uh, 17 years in five months ago that they would have last fought. So that's 2004, I think, um, was when they fought. But I was told it was 209 months, which just happens to be the uh, area code of Stockton, which I thought was also a fun little fact there. Um, and... Speaking of Stockton, I am going to go with Nick Diaz. Um, I can't believe I'm going to pick Nick Diaz in a fight in 2021. But, hey, here's where we are. Um, my problem being is that I think Nick Diaz can do enough of a similar thing that Colby Covington did to Robbie Lawler. Um, when we watched that fight, it was volume, right? That really bobby bothered Robbie Lawler. Angles, getting in his face, hitting him, and also, like, being able to, like, move his head out of the way so he doesn't take that return right hand into the face and i think whether or not you know nick diaz is the old old nick diaz or at least just like a standard close-ish version of nick diaz that's always the thing he's been able to do is to like kind of pile on volume and, and perplex his opponents and that right now is the thing that is giving robbie lawler the most trouble um so for that reason I can't believe I'm going to say it, but I'm going to go with Nick Diaz here uh, as a negative 115 favorite. So all that time off, negative 115, I'm still picking Nick Diaz. Yeah, I got to say, I just I am a huge fan of both guys. Ten years ago, even five years ago for Robbie Lawler, could not care less about this fight. <laughs> I got bigger and better things. I, gotta, I mean, I am more interested in the who's number one uh, grappling tournaments this weekend than seeing these two old fucks fight. All right, our dog of the week is Cynthia Cavijo. She's a plus 220 over Jessica Andrade. Break it down. Yeah, I, I'm a little bit worried about Jessica Andrade wrestling up at 125. Now, granted, uh, Cynthia Calvijo is also a former 115er. Um, she just fills out the division a lot better for me. Um, and I, I think that that's going to be a real problem for Andrade. You, you saw when she fought Valentina Shevchenko, her takedown defense looked almost non-existent. And yeah, Valentina Shevchenko, also a good wrestler. Uh, worth noting that she's not just head kicks to the face, but... I think it exposed a lot of weaknesses that exist in Jessica Andrade's game. And, and look, n not to take anything away from her, but a lot of her wins are big, devastating knockouts early in fights. And if she doesn't land that, like, sometimes she gets outworked. Sometimes she gets absolutely, you know, overwhelmed. And if Calvillo mixes in the wrestling enough, she's going to win some rounds there. I think at plus 220, it's just too easy of a pick here to uh, to not go with Calvillo. Our parlay to play, you could take Nicholas Maximov, who's a minus 108 favorite, but pair him together with uh, Manon Fioro. Fioro? Fioro. French. Fioro. Fioro, <laughs> who's 2-0 in the UFC and betting off at a minus 250. So take a pretty strong favorite in Fioro and a very slight favorite in Maximov, and it'll get you a plus 170 odds looks here. So you're not, you're not going to find a much bigger Manon Fioro fan than me because, I mean, she's looked absolutely amazing in her two fights in the UFC. You know, you don't find a lot of UFC women's flyweights who come into the, the UFC and instantly finish their first two opponents and do so in an emphatic fashion. She's an absolute dynamo on the feet. 
she's fighting somebody here who is just going to be badly outmatched on the feet, desperately needs the fight on the ground. And not for anything, Firo can wrestle a little bit too. I, I would love to see her against some of the top women in that division. So I'm super excited to see her here. I think she's going to easily beat the hell out of Mara Buena Silva. Nick Maximoff, on the other hand, he's a Diaz guy. I don't know if you got a chance to see him on the Contender Series last year. He actually didn't win a contract. He took a fight on three days' notice, two weight classes heavy. Uh, he is a middleweight. He was fighting at heavyweight on two days' notice. He weighed 207 pounds for that fight and beat the hell out of a guy who was 260. Um, for some reason, they didn't give him a contract. They offered him the ultimate fighter. I think with uh, Nick Diaz in his ear and Nate Diaz in his ear, he told Dana White to go fuck himself. Uh, and still winds up here with a fight against Carl Roberson. The thing about Maximoff, though, that I love, and I think he's a nightmare matchup for for Roberson, is that Roberson has had trouble with grapplers. Look at the guys who beat Carl Roberson, and it's just so obvious that he has a tough time with the takedowns. He's fighting a guy with great wrestling and Diaz-level jiu-jitsu. Man, I think he's just going to roll over Roberson here, probably sub him too on top of that. And if not, at least beating the hell out of him on the top game. Roberson's going to have to try to defend those takedowns against the cage, but I think it's going to look a lot like what Glover Teixeira did to, to Roberson. So yeah, I like Firo and Maximoff here and getting plus 170 is not too bad. Not too bad. And I don't think this edition of Fights, Dogs, and Parlays was not too bad either. I think I just triple negative us, but whatever, everyone gets it. Head on over to iTunes, write a five-star review if you think we earned it. It sure is appreciated. Helps keep the lights on in the Top Turtle Podcast Studio. We are so excited for the fights this Saturday. We, of course, will be live tweeting as they're going along. We're always good for a funny tweet or two, at Top Turtle MMA. Ditto goes for our Instagram, same handle. Gumby, this train is a-rumbling down the tracks. Where are we stopping next? Well, we're going to transition now to my interview with Jonathan Pierce. We're going to talk a little bit about his headspace coming into this fight, picking up a big win last time, and a little bit about his UFC 266 matchup. So we're going to get to that interview for you right now. All right, and joining me today is Jonathan Pierce, who fights Omar Morales at UFC 266 on September 25th. So Jonathan, before we start talking about that fight, I did want us to talk about the fight you were supposed to have back in May. You were supposed to fight Gabriel Benitez. He obviously misses weight very badly, and you chose not to fight him as a result. Can you sort of take us through what that decision was like and how you came across the decision that you weren't going to fight a guy who was, you know, ridiculously overweight? Yeah, I just thought it was unprofessional. He had contacted me before we had flown out there. And was like, I'm not going to make weight. Will you fight me at 150? And I'm like, well, show me the money. And he didn't want to give me no money at all. So at that point, I was not negotiating anymore. And I just cut my weight, showed up ready to fight. He didn't show up ready to fight. So that's how it went. That makes a lot of sense to me. And it's interesting, too, that he, he contacted you ahead of time. H had you responded to that at all other than show me the money and he said just he said no and then there was no more negotiation on any in any way i mean we countered with 30 percent his team i had really no response was just like meet us at 150 uh, i was sick try to give excuses i mean this is a tough game like we don't care if you're sick like you got to show up ready to fight so you know we're not going to cut you a break just because you showed up sick so i guess negotiation ended at that moment and then it just was proceed the process makes a lot of sense to me now as a result of all that you've now been out of the cage for almost 10 months by the time this fight kicks off 
Has it been hard for you being out of the cage for that long, seemingly with, with no real injuries that, that were keeping you out? Uh, you know, it's a part of the process and more time to get better, more time to prepare. That makes a lot of sense. But out of curiosity, is there anything in one in particular that you feel like you've you know polished up in that 10 months without uh, an actual fight? I think everything. I think my mind. I think I've matured. I'm now getting in. I'm just turned 29. On the well, I was actually supposed to fight on my 29th birthday, so I'm matured and I'm just I'm just excited to showcase my skills on my next one. For sure. And let's talk about that next one. So Omar Morales, he's a guy who who's definitely got a whole bunch of hype behind him. He's already three and one in the UFC. That lone loss was just a Giga Chikadze, so certainly no shame in that. What were your thoughts on him when they gave you him as a potential opponent for you? I actually asked for him. Like, I thought he was a stylistic matchup for me. He's a striker. I'm a wrestler. He hasn't really had anybody that could wrestle as well as I could when we get in there. But not to mention, like, a lot of my finishes are TKO knockouts. So uh, I believe I bring the stand-up game as well. I'm taller than him, and I feel like I'm bringing a lot of tools into this fight that he doesn't know about. And so you mentioned that, that he's a style matchup that you like in there. Is is that your preferred fight? When when you're looking at a, a potential fight, you prefer to fight a guy who considers themselves a striker and, and prefers to strike? I'll fight them all. Um, we're in the UFC now, so I like all the stylistic matchups because it allows me to work a different part of my game and make that game stronger so later on in my career, like maybe instead of finishing with my hands every time I get on the ground, maybe I'll start choking guys out. I love it. Now, you said that you you feel like you can stand in there and trade with them too, especially because of the length and because that your boxing has gotten better and all of that kind of stuff. Do, do you feel like that's a place where you want to take this game, or is this one where you do want to show off your ground skills more often? Uh, I think I'll take the fight where you know i feel is needed in the moment i feel like right now you can't you know you're not in the fight so what can you really say about it and uh you know just pull the trigger when you're out there and have fun while you're doing it well we're looking forward to you doing it now before we we let you go i I did want to ask you some stuff about a little bit earlier in your career you know just scanning through your your record you started off really hot in your pro career and and then took a pretty rough three fight losing streak fell to four and three which is a record you don't see out of a lot of pros that wind up in the UFC. Can you tell us a little bit about like what was going through your mind during those early days when, when you did have that rough stretch? Uh, I just knew that I was showing up every day, putting in my time, and eventually I would catch a break. I didn't, I didn't know if I was going to catch it. I thought I had missed it, and I just hit it home. You know, uh, Sometimes you slip and fall, and you just got to learn how to pick it back up and run with it again and is that the the type of mentality that you sort of carry into mma because you know you're a guy who's been in some fights where you've been in tough situations or been in really bad situations and pop right back up and look for the finish is, is that sort of your your mentality would you say concerning mma both in a fight and in a career yeah i think everybody should have that mentality non-stop you know because this life ain't gonna live itself I love it. That's a great message for people out there. Now, I did want to ask you one more question because, you know, I'm a I'm a sucker for a good nickname story. I like hearing where people get their nicknames from. 
And, and you've got a nickname that obviously harkens back to uh, one of the greats of all time. You know, you go by the nickname JSP, which of course sounds a lot like GSP, and and of course people immediately draw that parallel. What what brought you that nickname? Where did that one come from? So when I first started fighting, I had like really long blonde hair and like sunshine, you know, popped up in the gym and that's what the guys called me. So I walked out to sunshine for like probably my amateur career. And then I had like switched gyms and gotten a better gym and was working with better people. And I asked like my sensei at that time, Dustin Walden, what I should be named. And he was like, dude, you're JSP. And I was like, I'm JSP, you know? So that's where the name come from. And I've been rocking it ever since. And I thought it was a good switch up, but you know, if you want to know where the S comes from, I guess that's what it came from, you know? I, I like that. Now, did, did you ever hate the nickname Sunshine or, or did you love that nickname before too? I mean, I was really young. I was 19. I really didn't care. I thought it, I took it as an advantage because they're like, oh, you're fighting Sunshine. You know, <laughs> like, what? Who, who's that? You know, and then it's like this little kid, you know, that looks like Patty Mill. And the next thing you know, I'm I'm winning. So it was it was pretty cool to have like a different style than everybody else just have my own, own thing going for me. I dig it. Now, let's return to the fight real quick for one more question before I let you go here. You know, you're fighting Omar Morales. You said you, you certainly feel like you can't predict the fight because you don't know where it's going, and, and you like to react to the situations, but I'd be remiss if I didn't mention or didn't ask out here for a prediction. How do you see this one going? In your, in your perfect way, how does this one get it done? I think second round is, if you look at the stats, I finished most of my fights in the second round. If they if they make it out of the second round, they usually don't make it out of the third. So I think this is going to be a fight for the fans, dude. Uh, if he brings his gay game, we could go the distance. But if he doesn't, I I'm, I'm think I'll, I'll finish him. KO, TKO. All right, well, you heard it here first, folks. This is Jonathan Pierce who fights Omar Morales at UFC 266. On September 25th, Jonathan, thank you so much for the time, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And that's going to do it for another episode of Top Turtle MMA Podcast. We want to thank you, the fans, for tuning in each and every week. We could not do what we do without you guys. We also want to thank our sponsors, Maroon Social and Better Than Vegas. And we want to remind you guys that you can check us out on Twitter and Instagram. At Top Turtle MMA are the handles there. And until next week, I'm Daniel Gumby-Freeland. He is Shockwave Dave Tremonte, and we will catch you then.